0: Well, good morning. I'm not sure if I'll get any surprises like that while I'm up here. You're welcome to talk back to me from time to time, just like these guys did. You did it for Kevin. How about a few for me? <laughs> My name's Adrian. I'm uh, the lead pastor here at Carnegie Free. If we haven't yet met, I'd love to connect with you after the service. I'm very excited for that Saturate conference, though, that's coming. It's a wonderful book that Jeff Vanderstelt has written, and we've read it in many of our different leadership teams here at the church, And um, I love the premise behind Vanderstelt's work, that what we need is all-of-life discipleship. Sunday-only Christianity just doesn't do it, does it? Church-only Christianity just doesn't do it. We need it seven days a week, and so uh, I'm grateful for Vanderstelt's work, and uh, I anticipate that that would be a great conference for our church as a whole here December 2nd and 3rd. Well, this morning we are continuing our series in um, this... Uh, title, The God that Jesus Revealed, with that bumper though, that you just saw. And the past couple Sundays, we've looked at these two themes, God is holy, and then God encourages goof-ups, like us. And today, we are going to look at this theme, that God is able. And in the process, um, my, my hope is to look a bit more at the character of God, that we would understand that He is willing, that He is able, that He is utterly loving and totally trustworthy, and therefore we can have complete confidence in Him. And as I was thinking about my uh, sermon last week, uh, mood rings came into my mind. Mood rings. You remember those? There's a mood ring. You say, how is a mood ring in your mind while you're prepping for sermon? That's a very good question. And for that, I don't have an answer. But uh, I I was prepping through my sermon, and the idea of mood ring came into my mind. And uh, did you have one of these as a kid? Anyone raise your hand and admit it? Oh, wow. These marketers really schooled you guys. (laughs) (laughs) They took a few of my dollars as well, and uh, the mood ring, the premise behind it, this is an old thing, was that uh, you'd have different colors to represent different moods, and uh, dark navy blue meant someone was uh, cold and ambivalent and maybe angry and stay away from him, and then light blue, really light blue was uh, joyous and happy, and then you had a number of different colors in between. And maybe you could look at someone's mood ring and determine whether you're going to talk to them or not. Based on their mood, you wouldn't want to pick up their nasty mood. And uh, it actually uh, turned out that some research was done. And, of course, these don't measure moods. They just measure body temperature. But uh, marketers uh, worked it nonetheless and made a whole lot of money in the process, I might add. And so uh, I was thinking about that mood rings and uh, decided to buy one last week and share it here this morning with the question, what if there was such a thing as confidence in God rings? And what if we all had to wear them? And I'd see one of these ugly things on each of our fingers. I wonder what color your ring would be. Maybe you'd walk through campus at UNK, and you'd see a number of young people who had really cultivated a relationship with God and cultivated a deep trust in Him. And theirs would be that uh, that light blue color that shows a great confidence in the greatness of God. And you'd see many others who have a dark blue color, that they're kind of ambivalent about God, maybe even angry and hostile to Him. And others still that maybe are kind of a, a yellow, lukewarm color toward God. Blah, they feel toward God. And I wonder even what we'd see here in this room. If each of us had to wear one of these, and it could actually reflect for us what we feel toward God right now, what kind of confidence we have in His character right now. Some of us would have this overwhelming sense of love and confidence in Him, and others of us would be in that state of very dark blue, almost black, where we say, I'm kind of ambivalent toward God right now. If I really had to be honest. And why is that? I think there are probably many different reasons, but a few that I can think of relate to the character of God that we get into our minds. For some, it's probably because they're not sure that God actually cares about them. They know God cares about seven billion, yes, but does he actually care about me? For others, they might lack confidence in God because. They're not sure God is able to help them. Yeah, I know God is, is nice. He's like this gentle giant in the sky, but I don't really have any confidence that he'd be able to help me in my time of need. And others would have that yellow on the ring, that blah state, because they treat God like fire insurance. That he's not worth much in life, but I better have him in death. For whatever the reason, I'm sure that there are many that are in that place today. And I'd like you to know that wherever you are today spiritually, if you've been away from God for a long time, you've known Christ for a long time, but you've just kind of been going through the motions, or you've been seriously following Christ for many years, wherever you are with respect to Christ today, I, I'd like to suggest that as you get to know the character of God as revealed in the person of Jesus, in the story that we are going to read this morning, your confidence in God will go up. So, what we're going to do here this morning is something that I don't normally do. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to John chapter 11. We always read a passage of Scripture here on Sunday morning, but this morning, out of John chapter 11, I'm going to read 44 verses. And I know that's a long section. And I know some of you, when you hear someone just stand up and read a long section for five minutes, your eyes glaze over and your head nods back. How do I know that? Because I watch you. (laughs) I've noticed. But in spite of that, this is a powerful story. It's a really, really powerful story that reveals to us the greatness of the character of God. Now, I don't want to shortchange it. I want to ask that we would kind of sit on it and chew on it as we process through these 44 verses. You'll see them up on the screen, and we'll read through them and unpack some basic principles that we get from Jesus in this beautiful story. John 11, starting at verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair over in chapter 12, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary. And Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you over in Judea, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Perhaps you could have done something about it. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, No, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and he was greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Father, would you please teach us from this your very word. Help us to understand a little bit more of your character as revealed by the beauty of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Teach us now. I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So much could be said about this beautiful chapter, but I'd like to just present a very simple outline in the moments that we have remaining with a couple points and then one big idea. The first thing that I take from this chapter from this story is that Jesus reveals God loves you personally. Perhaps you noticed at the beginning of this episode the intimacy of the relationship that Jesus has with Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and He's intimately interacting with each of them Of course, we focus on the man who walks out of the tomb, and we will get to that, but first you have Mary and Martha who are concerned about their brother who has become ill, and so they sent to him saying, in verse 3, Lord, he whom you love has become ill. The one that you love, Jesus, has now become ill. Wouldn't that be great to be referred to that way in reference to Jesus, Jesus, the one that you personally love, has gotten ill. Now Lazarus, of course, just to say some context, was not one of the disciples, but he clearly was a disciple of Jesus. And apparently he was kind of like a brother from another mother. Do you have one of those? Or a sister from another mother? That they actually stick closer to you than your blood brother or your blood sister. Apparently that's Lazarus here, For Jesus, the one whom you love is ill. It goes on in verse 5 to say, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. What a great line this is. He doesn't simply love their family. He loves them each by name. And of course, he's already named Mary earlier in the story. But now he takes time to also name Martha and Lazarus, because he loves them each by name. I love this about our God. He doesn't simply love seven billion people, he loves us individually. You think about God, so sometimes we assume that he doesn't have the capacity to love us personally. But what I want to tell you from the story, what we see here and so many other places in the scriptures, is he loves you by name. Seven billion, yes, but also Chris. And Sally and Jamie and Johnny by name. He loves the Carney E. Free Church family. He loves your family. And he loves you individually. And he goes on in this beautiful episode. We oftentimes think of him kind of scolding Martha because there's this other episode in which he does correct Martha. Do you remember that? He's interacting with Mary and Martha in this other episode in Luke chapter 11. And he kind of challenges Martha to stop being so busy and to sit with Mary at the feet of Jesus and to just worship. And I think sometimes we mistake out of that story that Jesus doesn't love Martha the same way that he loves Mary. But here you have in this story, and I pray all the Marthas in this room. Any Marthas in this room? I pray all the Marthas in the room would hear the beauty of this line. He loved Martha. And he loved Mary and he loved Lazarus. So while he corrected her, in that moment, he didn't love her any less than he loved Mary. Servants and those who are contemplative, who just sit at the feet of Jesus, are both most welcome. You see, God loves us not as a race or as a species. God loves us the same way that we love people one at a time. One person at a time. And so he calls them out by name here. If you fast forward toward the climax of the story and you look at verse 33, four days have passed and Jesus has now returned to Bethany in Judea. And Mary and Martha have this deep faith, but they're a little bit disappointed in Jesus. And you hear it in both of their lines to Jesus. Well, when he comes back, They both say to him separately, Lord, if you would have been here, they tell him, if you would have been here, if you just could have been here, then maybe our brother would still be living. You could have done something. And so when Jesus saw Mary weeping, verse 33, and the Jews who had come with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and he was greatly troubled. I've underlined those two lines in my Bible. He was deeply moved and he was greatly troubled. So the custom of the day was when someone died, there would be a community grieving amongst the village. Have you ever been in a country or perhaps seen on the news in an Arab country or in Africa when someone dies and many people come around, that family that has just lost a loved one, and they all collectively grieve together, and sometimes there are loud shrieks. Have you ever seen that? you ever heard that? And everyone within earshot can hear that they are grieving Everyone with an eye sight can see that they are grieving. Well, that was the dominant way that people grieved in the ancient world, in Israel and Palestine, and that's what's going on here. They're collectively wailing. If you can imagine the scene, everyone would be able to see and hear that someone has died. Jesus is deeply moved by this. He is greatly troubled by this. And he empathizes with them. He mourns with them. And so we see this next line from verse 35 and 36. The shortest verse in all of the Bible is verse 35, Jesus wept. He weeps with those who are mourning over the loss of this dear friend, Lazarus. And they all remark, do you see how he loved him? I'm really fascinated by these two scenes next to each other and by the reality that in the original Greek language, the word for Jesus' weeping here is actually different than the word that is used in the original Greek language for Mary and the other people that are mourning. The word for their mourning is more like wailing. The word for Jesus' weeping is more like this. He teared up. He got choked up. He felt deeply with them, And I think the difference there is not that there's a right way to mourn and a wrong way to mourn. It's not that at all. But the difference is that Jesus gives us a portrait of what it looks like to grieve over someone that you've lost, that you love deeply, as he did with Lazarus, but to still grieve with hope. And 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says that about those who follow Christ, that we are amongst those who are able to grieve with hope. And we might still wail loudly as Mary and her friends do here, but we grieve with a sense of deep hope because we know that that is not the end of the story for this person who has passed away in Christ. And we know that all suffering will ultimately be redeemed, and we know that every injustice will ultimately be overturned. And Jesus doesn't wail here, I believe, because he knows, as he's already stated, the glory of God is about to be revealed. So he loves these people personally. And then it goes on. The next idea that we see in this is Jesus reveals that God is able to exceed our expectations. He's loving and he is able to do something, he's able to exceed our expectations. Whatever your expectations are of God, I promise you, Jesus is able to exceed those expectations. He returns to Bethany, and he states in Bethany one of the boldest proclamations in all of the Bible. We just sang it when we spoke of the great I Am. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he goes on to say, whoever believes in me, though he or she will die, yet shall they live. And what Jesus does here for Mary and the others who are grieving is he replaces for them the very faint hope that they would have in a resurrection at the very end of days with a real living hope for all of those who are in Christ right now. This is what uh, ancient faithful Jews believe. This is what contemporary faithful Jews believe. Contemporary Orthodox Jews believe that there will be a resurrection at the very end when Messiah finally comes and people who trusted in God will be resurrected when Messiah comes. But until then, all those who die just go into soul sleep with no consciousness at all. And so that's why Martha and Mary say to Jesus, "Yeah, Yeah, I know that he will be resurrected in the last day. I know, I know, Jesus. That's a little bit of hope for me, but it's kind of a faint hope right now. And Jesus says, no, I'm offering something far better than that. What I'm telling you is I am the resurrection and the life here and now for you today. That as you live, you get to begin enjoying eternal life with me right now. That anyone who has bowed their knee to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within that person, they are redeemed, and they begin to live the eternal kind of life that we will be living for all of eternity, starting now. Can I please get an amen to that? Yeah, we, we get to start living, we don't get to wait till we die to begin living eternal life. We get to begin living eternal life, living in the fruit of the Spirit Today. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, that's the very best description of the good life that anyone has ever given. And we get that now. We're about to celebrate that a baptism, that four people are going to come up here, six people today Bob, being baptized, who have given their lives to Christ. And the moment they did, they became spiritually reborn, resurrected. They were given new life. They have new capacity not to sin, new capacity to follow God. And the result is that impatient people actually become patient. Dead people actually come to life. Harsh people become kind. Lustful people stop objectifying women. Alcoholics get sober. People who are addicted to their money start to get generous when they recognize that they are merely stewards of all that God has given. Angry people get self-control. And for some of us, this will be overnight. And for others, it will be over the course of many, many years. And that's true for me, the latter, over the course of many, many years. But some of us are here today believing that that's not possible for me. Don't believe that. He's the resurrection and the life right now. He wants to give you new life today. And he is able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all we could ever ask or imagine according to his great power which is in us now. To him be glory forever and ever. And I tell you, he's done that in my life. I know he's done it in so many of your lives. And as we perpetually put our lives in this position of submission to God, he keeps on giving us new life, changing us to be more like Christ. Resurrection is for us today. And then Jesus goes on and again gives this bold relief of hope compared to the contemporary Jewish relief of hope only at the end. He says, And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? It's really interesting. Well, when you look at the answer to that question, Do you believe this? He who believes in me will live. And uh, you ask the the question, what happens to us when we die? To the different world religions. Atheism, what does it say? You get eaten by worms and that's that's it. Which is a religion, by the way, atheism is. Or um, Judaism, I've already mentioned. Soul sleep until the end. Or Hinduism and Buddhism believe in karma and reincarnation. And there's this contemporary Hollywood-based idea of karma and reincarnation that's a really nice, beautiful thing, that you put a few quarters in a tip jar and you'll get something back into your life. That ain't it. Karma is debt. Karma is debt from previous misdeeds in your previous life which you will have to work out in your next life when you're reincarnated into a lower form because you had some sins in your previous life. Anyone? That's what Karma and reincarnation teaches this unending cycle of being reborn into the next cycle of working off the debt from your previous life. And Jesus says, I have come to exceed all of that. I am exceeding all of your expectations. What I am telling you is, he who lives, though he dies, yet he lives. He comes, she comes, and she dwells with me immediately. The moment we die, we go into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we've trusted in him for time and for eternity, those who trust in him in life and, in de- and death will most certainly enjoy him in death. And so the operative question that Jesus gives for all of us is very simple. Do you believe this? Do you? And if you don't, there can be no confidence. And if you do, there can be great, great confidence. And you don't have to have all the answers, but to know that your God is loving and to know that your God is able inspires great confidence, even with some of the things that you're not quite sure about. Here's the big idea that you want to be sure you take home today. Our God is able, our God is willing, and therefore we have confidence in Him. An old friend of mine named Marvin was really fond of saying that on a regular basis Uh, God is able, God is willing, therefore I have confidence. And I remember um, many, many years ago, uh, I was hanging out with Marvin. I got to know him through the homeless shelter that we were both serving at. And Marvin is a guy that suffered as much as anyone that I've known. He was born into grinding poverty in an inner city that was just a really rough environment. And his mother died at a very young age, and he never had a father. And uh, he saved up his money to get out of the inner city, only to move to the suburbs, where he faced intense racism. And uh, that's just what happened. He experienced intense racism in the suburb that he was living in. He was regularly rejected uh, because of his race and his different cultural and ethnic experiences. And on top of that, he got one illness after another illness, and he experienced homelessness for, for a time. But as I got to know Marvin, it became so obvious to me that he was very bright and very, very hardworking, and the only difference between him and me is that I had more margin when I fell. He didn't have much margin when he fell, and so he ended up in the shelter, whereas when I fell I ended up with friends and family. So he worked through that, and eventually he got out of the shelter, and he continued to minister to those who were at the shelter, and I remember one day particularly, we were sitting down with one of these guys having lunch. And Marvin's a guy that just immerses himself in the scriptures, and so his encouragement flows from the words of the Bible. We were talking to a guy who was very much in need of encouragement, and so uh, Marvin's tactic is to write down various verses that he loves, and then after writing them down and speaking them, handing those verses to the man that he's talking to. And so he takes this man through a few of his favorite verses, starting with Romans 7. He said, can I just tell you a bit about my story and how I got through this? He says that in Romans 7, this is Paul speaking, and Paul says, I do the very things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I want to do. Anyone else? Okay, he said that this was my issue, but yet yeah, Christ came into my life and he redeemed me, and uh, Christ took away all that other stuff, and he calls it rubbish, so he takes the man over to Philippians chapter 3, and he says all that is rubbish, and he says what I'm about now is I want to know Christ. And the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and he's just kind of in full preacher mode now. He's going from one verse to another verse, and he says, "I am far from perfect, and I fall down a whole lot." But let me show you one other verse. 1 John 1.8 says this, Even though I am far from perfect, God is faithful and just to forgive me of all my sins and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. He's faithful to bring me into the family of God and He'll never leave me or forsake me. And after about five or ten minutes of preacher mode, the man just kind of interrupts Marvin and he says to him, Marvin, I've never heard anyone talk like this. How could you have gone through what you have gone through and have this much confidence? And Marvin says simply, My friend, I have confidence because I know my God is able to help. And I have confidence because I know my God is willing to help me. And I know my God is able to help you. And I know my God is willing to help you. And as a result, we can have confidence in Him. I wonder if you'd even say that with me. Look at those three lines on the screen and say these three simple lines with me God is able, God is willing. Therefore, I have confidence in Him. Do you believe that? As we believe that our God is able to do far more than we could ask or imagine, as we believe that our God is willing to personally care for us in our hour of need, our confidence in God rings, here's mine, begin to glow really brightly. There is a different disposition in our soul, no matter what we might be going through. And so I think of those who are going through times of great grief right now, who perhaps are brokenhearted, and I'm reminded of Psalm 34 that says, "The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and He saves those who are crushed in spirit." If you're brokenhearted today, I pray that you would know this. This is true of the God of the Old Testament, as it's true of the God of the Jesus revealed, the God of the New Testament. He is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those. He is close to those who are crushed in spirit today. Or think about the multiple generations that we have represented in this church and how grateful we are for that and the reality that there's some in this church that are in their final chapter of life. And perhaps if you're there, you fear death. And as you fear death, that's a very normal emotion, but I pray that you would sit on the beauty of this passage from John 11 that we just studied. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And also you'd sit on the beauty of this passage of this passage, from Psalm 116, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I've had a couple friends who have recently died, just in the past couple months. They died way too soon. And I grieved deeply. I wailed over those. But then eventually I moved toward grieving with hope because their death was precious. They went into the presence of God. And that's a better hope than I can get anywhere else. I don't know about you, that's a better hope I can get anywhere else. It strikes me that Lazarus still died. Right? Lazarus died again, so to speak. And Mary and Martha still grieved. But precious was his death because he trusted in Christ. And precious will be your death as you trust in Christ. I think some people read John chapter 11 and they say, see if we beg Jesus really, really hard, maybe he'll prevent death for our loved ones. If we beg Jesus really, really hard, maybe we won't have to suffer that much. Maybe we won't have to go through cancer or some other terrible disease. Um, But the death rate, last time I checked, is one to one it's more reliable than taxes in April. It's coming to all of us, right? And suffering is coming to all of us. And it would be a false promise to believe that we could pray really, really hard and somehow escape suffering. Jesus promises us that we will suffer, but we will not be overcome by that suffering because we grieve with hope. And I pray that your confidence in God would be great as you study this passage, that you would realize that one, our God is able... He is able to preserve you both for today. He's able to change you today. He's able to hold you for all of eternity. And he is loving to personally care for you. If you're brokenhearted, if you're mourning over the death of a loved one, whatever it is, though, that you might be going through today, he personally is aware of that. He mourns with those who mourn. He is empathetic with those who are grieving. Our God is able. Our God is willing. And therefore, we have confidence in him. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are totally worthy of all of our worship. We sometimes wonder if God is good. And as I get into the Gospels, as we get in the Gospels in this series, we see that you are the image of the invisible God, and you are totally worthy of all of our worship. Father, I pray that you would be near at this moment to those who are broken hearted. There are some in this room today who are grieving a great loss. There are others who are struggling in relationships. There are others that are just barely making it financially. Father, would you be near to them through the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ? And I pray for all of us when we believe that we cannot be changed by God, we would look at a passage like this and realize that you are the resurrection and the life for us today. And we would submit our lives to you once again. We do so right now, asking that you would change us from the inside out. Now, Father, as we celebrate the the gift of baptism, and we see a number of lives who have been changed by you, we pray that you would inspire us by their words to the great work that you want to do in our church, in all of us, and in those we know who don't yet know Christ. Through the gift of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.